One, two, Here's two, the baby. two, one, two. Welcome to the John Lennon Hour with Jude Sutherland Kessler, author of the John Lennon series. Volume 1, Should Have Been There. Volume 2, Shivering Inside. And Volume 3, She Loves You. Purchase your copy of the John Lennon series at johnlennonseries.com. Welcome, Beatles fans. This is the John Lennon Hour. Tower clock strikes in the cold night air And it's onward to Liddy Pool for me Home to Liddy again Hello guys, welcome to the second Kit and Caboodle show of 2015 I am Kit, no I'm not Kit, I'm Caboodle Jude Sutherland Kessler, author of the John Lennon series a series of nine proposed historical narrative books on the life of John Lennon, available on johnlennonseries.com. And I'm Kit O'Toole, um, and, and I'm, I'm Kit, of course. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and uh, I am the author of Michael Jackson FAQ, which is coming up in November on Backbeat Books, and an upcoming um, compilation of uh, explorations into Beatles music entitled Songs We Were Singing, and that will be out in, uh, in August. Oh, I can't wait. I cannot wait to read that book. It is so good to hear from you, my friend. How are you? Oh, I am great, Caboodle. How are you? I am doing wonderful, and I'm excited about what we're doing tonight because I think you and I are both going to enjoy this, but I think people out there are going to love it because we're going to be talking about the six most unappreciated Beatles or John Lennon tunes, and we're going to go all the way from the very beginning of the Quarrymen, 57 up to 1980. Anything can happen, but we're going to talk about songs that deserve a second listen and another consideration, right? Absolutely, and I've been seeing some of you uh, listeners on Facebook have been trying to guess uh, which songs we're going to pick, and I think you uh, may find some surprises tonight. I think they will, and we're going to give a free T-shirt that Rand, we don't have a name for him, we're Kit and Caboodle, we have to come up with a name for him, but he drew a, a beautiful sketch of John Lennon for the cover of She Loves You, and we're going to give that away to the person who guessed the most of these six songs that we're going to do. But before we get going, Kit and I want to endorse something that we think you really need to have in your ebook library. And that is a very sharp, smart, savvy book by the owner of Moonglow PR, Jen Vanderslice. It's called The Frugal Publicist. The Frugal Publicist is only $2.99 on Amazon, or if you were smart yesterday for tax day, it was free for 24 hours, but look, $2.99, that's as close to free as you can get. It's for everyone who's written a book, but then just has it sitting there gathering dust in a box, and you don't know how to sell it in the best way. Now, 
I've published three books in the John Lennon series and have been working at least four hours a day on the selling process of selling those books. And still, over the last eight years, I did not know all of the things that are in the Frugal Publicist. So I highly recommend it. Kit, have you gotten your copy yet? I certainly did, and I'll tell you, I, as you know, I am new to the self-publishing game, and it can be a very overwhelming experience, you know, to learn the ins and outs, and book promotion is a huge part of that, obviously, and so it's great that, you know, Jen has shared her tips from all her years of, of doing promotion, and I'll tell you, I mean, this is this is a bargain, you know. It's it's really such a valuable resource, and uh, and I definitely recommend that you pick it up. Yeah, it it is quite good, and I made a list as I read it. I made the list of all the things that I need to do, and I have it taped to my computer. And as I get one accomplished, I'm scratching it off the list. But it, it would take you you know, a long, long time to do all the things that. She, that she suggests in the book, but it totally makes a difference. Writing is only 5% sitting at the computer and writing your text, 95% of it selling, and that's what she's going to help you with. And one of the things that Jen will tell you that you can do to sell books is establish yourself as an expert in your area, whether your area is kite flying or it's politics or if you're an elf and you're into shoemaking, whatever, you've <laughs> got to establish yourself as an expert. And that brings us to tonight's program because both Kid and I are Beatles authors. Of course, she's also written this great book on Michael Jackson that's coming out. And we're here to talk about our field, the Beatles, and to work really hard tonight to earn your respect. And hopefully in doing that, we're going to sell you one of our books. So I guess we better get started, huh, Kat? All right. Sounds good. All well, right. My... We're going to do it. And uh, Kit, you're going to be the first one. You're going to kick it off. So All you, right. you tell us, what song do you think is the most unappreciated in the John Lennon Library? Well, this is a song that... To, to this day, it's a mystery to me why it hasn't gotten more attention. Um, and it may be because it's a bittersweet listening experience. And what I'm talking about is borrowed time. Um, this appeared, of course, on the posthumous collection uh, Milk and Honey in 1984, um, originally intended for the Double Fantasy album. In fact, I believe it was the second song he recorded during those sessions and ultimately decided it just didn't fit in you know, with, with the rest of the album. And it, it really, uh, you know, he obviously was planning to go back to it later on and Unfortunately, of course, we'll never get to hear what his ultimate vision for it was. But um, I, I just, I've heard this song when I was 12 years old, and, um, you know, before I even was fully aware of who John Lennon was. And it just grabbed me immediately. And I think it's significant for, for two reasons. First of all, the, um, the sound of it, the, the genre that he was starting to experiment with, and I'll get to that in a minute. And secondly, lyrically it's a it's an extremely significant uh song it gives us an idea of perhaps the direction he was heading in um for his next album so let's hear a little bit of the song and then let's uh, let's dig deeper into this track okay
Yeah, just just a, a beautiful song on on many levels, really. Um, first of all, I, I want to draw your attention to it's obviously reggae um, influenced, mm-hmm. um, and just a little personal bias here. I I like reggae a lot, uh, Bob Marley in particular, and so it, it, the song sort of grabs me initially because of that. And uh, John was a Bob Marley fan, um, you know, as we all know, um, you know, he uh, traveled to Bermuda. Uh, before the Double Fantasy Sessions and sailed to Bermuda, in fact, and went through a terrible storm uh, and ended up having to take control of of the ship for uh, a time uh, during this terrible storm. And it really changed him. You know, I mean, mean, when you go through a near-death experience like that, I think it makes you think about that you are living on on borrowed time. You know, and in addition, you know, he, he was listening to Bob Marley on that trip, uh, and specifically a song from 1973 called Hallelujah Time. And there was a line in it that says, we've got to keep on living, living on borrowed time. Mm-hmm. So um, he decided to interpret the song and, uh, himself and do his own version of reggae. Now, reggae fans out there may know, you know, the, the usual sort of um, rhythm guitar pattern is kind of a chuck, 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 you know, like that. This is different. Yeah. You know, yeah, this is this is more melodic. You know, this is this is John's interpretation of reggae. And it's just wonderful to hear him experimenting with world music like that. And I wish he'd had more of a chance to do it. You know, it, 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 I think it brought something more, I, I, you know, something different um, to his sound. We all love the rock and roll stuff he did, absolutely. But, you know, yeah. he started, yeah, I mean, he started um, experimenting with this with Beautiful Boy, of course. And this is, this is an extension of that. So that's, that's one thing. Secondly... Um, the lyrics. Um, now, obviously, they, they took on a new tone uh, after uh, his, his uh, tragic death. But mm-hmm. still, you know, pushing that aside for a minute, um, it's, it's kind of a, uh, his philosophy. You know, I like to think of this as watching the wheels part two. You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is him you know, reflecting on his life. I, I love some of the lines in here. When I was younger, living confusion and deep despair, and then singing when I was younger, living illusion of freedom and power. I just saw the illusion of freedom and power. I mean, most people would think, wow, in the 60s, wasn't, wasn't that what you were all about? And, mm-hmm. you know, what he's saying here is that he, like many of us in our 20s and so forth, you know, we're not settled in our lives yet. We're still trying to figure things out. So he, t- you know, talks about this, but ultimately he says, I wouldn't change a thing, you know, <laughs> um, that, that I learned from that. But what he learned is, you know, living on borrowed time without a thought for tomorrow and any things well, good to be older, um, and so what he's saying here is, you know, live in live in the moment. Don't dwell in the past. You can reflect on it and say I've learned from it. But he wanted to, to clearly move forward, you know, in his life and just enjoy the moment, kind of like what he was talking about in watching the wheels, enjoying the moment and looking forward to the future. It, it's just a, it's such a universally relatable thought, and, and I think that this was a signal of where he was going, going in his future mm-hmm. albums. And it's just, of course, a tragedy that we never got to hear them. So, so that's why I think lyrically and musically it's a significant song. And believe it or not, when it was released as a single in the U.S. in 1984, it didn't even make the top 100. You know, wow. I mean, I, and I'm I'm stunned. I still I I don't understand it to this day. So so this is this is my chance to to finally show uh, show it the respect it deserves. So that's that's my first pick. 
I saw someone um, on the website the other day say, well, this is such a negative song because you know, it's so death aware. But it's anything but that, isn't it? Exactly. I mean, you know, when you're, we're just looking at it that way because, of course, we know what ultimately happened. But, you know, put, putting that aside, and I know it's hard to do, you know, really listen to it. This is a song about optimism. You know, he yeah. was looking forward to the future, and that's one of the things I, I love about it. Yeah, it's reminding you to, to savor every day because life is so precious, right? Absolutely, and it, and it's just, uh, you know, as usual, he put it in, in such an honest way and a relatable way. Yeah, and and I do love the very unusual reggae feel. I know you love the islands, and you spend a good time there each year, and it certainly has that carefree, blissful, peaceful island feel to it, doesn't it? Absolutely, and as I said, you know, he was clearly influenced by Bob Marley, which is not hard to do. He was a, he was a, another musical genius, and and I just think this is a great interpretation. You know, John's version of Bob Marley. Yeah, yeah, it is. Well, mine is a a Beatles song per se, but as we know, you know, just because it was Lennon McCartney. Very distinctly, there were songs that were Paul's and there were songs that were John's. And and this one is Yes It Is, which is a John Lennon creation. And so many times, and I'm sure the same thing happens to you, Kit, people probably ask you what's your favorite Beatles song. Do they do that all the time? Oh, all the time. (laughs) And what is your favorite Beatles song? You know, I mean, what I always say to people is, ask me tomorrow. I mean, like right now, I'm on a Beatles for sale kick. You know, I, yeah. I've kind of rediscovered that. Ask me tomorrow, and, and I would give you a completely different answer. It's it's just hard. It's so it. hard to choose. It is hard to choose. It is hard. My favorite, strangely enough, people can never understand it, is a cover song. I love Baby It's You because when you hear John sing that, he's doing something really special. He's trusting you. He's letting you in on the story of his life. And the exact same thing happens when you listen to Yes, It Is. He's telling you who he is in a very private, unvarnished, there's no fixing it up or making it better. It's almost a feral way. Um, He's telling you what is happening inside his heart. And I find it so hard to understand why, why Beatles fans and critics, too, really go all out and say that this boy or that that boy as John always <laughs> called it is is it's great but they fail to praise yes it is because the two songs are very 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 similar they're both 12 8 time they both have block harmonies for the verses and then John comes in with this soulful heart-wrenching middle section and the really Seriously, the only difference that I can see in those two songs, besides the fact that this boy is a scenario, it's a story, and yes, it is, is a true-to-life, this-is-what-happened-to-me-in-my-life story. The only difference is that, yes, it is, the harmonies are more skillful, the writing is more seasoned. In fact, if you go to the website, Beatles eBooks, you can find this evaluation. It says... The similarities between Yes It Is and This Boy are striking. In the verses, you have that three-part harmony and you have the doo-wop chord pattern. However, the harmonies are much more unpredictable in Yes It Is, weaving Mm -hmm. up 
and down and around John's lead, while this doo-wop chord pattern is only used in the first four measures, and it's, it's complemented with these extraordinary progressions. It, it is beautifully written musically. It, you know, Kit, there's that part where John does that delayed, hesitant triplet, that yes, it is, it's true, and man, it's like taking a pen and underlining, yes, it is. He's really underlining it. That's a very mature technique of phrasing. And that brings us to the wheelhouse of the Beatles, that three-part harmony. I get tickled yes. when you you read the anthology and you see, you know, Paul saying his father taught them that three-part harmony that they use in If I Fell and This Boy and much later, of course, in Because. But George Harrison comes out and he goes, well, in my memory, that's not the case. Yeah, there were always harmony songs around. Harmony in Western music's natural, and when you think back to early rock and roll, there was always stuff like Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers, you know, How Do Fools Fall in Love, the Everly Brothers, the Platters, and George says everybody has had harmonies, so he doesn't really remember Jim Mack teaching John and George and Paul how to sing three-part harmony. George Harrison said it was just always there. If you go back to the Cavern Club days, they're singing to No, No, Know Him is to Love, Love, Love Him by the Teddy Bears. On the BBC, you can hear it. They always did three-part harmony. Now, here, and yes, it is, it's superb. It's Mm -hmm. the best. The only thing in this song that's better than their three-part harmony are the lyrics. They're so well done, so well done. Here's where the English teacher and me, you know, you and I can get geeky if we want. <laughs> you're, you're, you're preaching to the choir, Jude. You know, go for it. <laughs> oh, we, we can go there. But, okay, scarlet are the clothes she wore. Is somebody really wearing the color red? Uh, no. Being clothed in scarlet is an image in literature of betrayal. I mean, any time that you're clothed in something, it means that you emit that essence to the world. You emanate that quality. And we know in the book of Psalms there's a line about a virtuous woman that says she's clothed in dignity and strength. Now, here this woman's clothed in something. She's wrapped in it, and it's scarlet. Not red, but scarlet. And scarlet is a color that evokes Of course, somebody's love for life. There's joie de vivre, which totally Julia Lennon had. But it's also a color that hints at double dealing and betrayal, the scarlet woman, the scarlet letter. So here again, John is telling you about this woman he loved that was not true to him. She left him behind. She abandoned him. She she left him on his own. And when he says, everybody knows, I'm sure, you can just feel his humiliation, his pain, his embarrassment. And there's this really vivid moment and should have been there. John's about seven years old, and I got the information for this from Pete Shotton's book, John Lennon mm-hmm. in My Life, and he tells how they're in Sunday school class. And the teacher is making each one of them stand up and tell who their parents are, what their parents do. And he's watching John's face go from white to blotchy to redder and redder as this humiliating, ostracizing moment gets closer and closer to John. He's going to have to stand up in 1947 when divorce was taboo in Liverpool. And he's going to have to say, I don't live with my parents. I live with my aunt and uncle. And what's worse, both of his parents are alive. They just don't want him. Hmm. So it's an 
awful experience for this little boy to have to stand there and to say that she's abandoned him and his dad's abandoned him. He's been left behind for very complicated reasons, but it's a horrible moment. Now, Cynthia comes along when he's in art college, and she does her best to remedy that hurt, that embarrassment, that humiliation. But in this song, John is out and out saying to her, I could be happy with you by my side if I could forget her. But that's a problem. He cannot forget, or he won't forget. He can't forgive and forget, and he knows that's wrong. He says that my pride yes it is yes it is pridefully he can't let go he can't move on he can't be normal again and that's the searing pain at the center of his life and at the center of this song and when yes it is came out cynthia said this is my favorite beatles track so far and why well because she saw the real john it's john putting himself out there in these lyrics even the way he puts the song together in that um, verse, verse, bridge, verse. When he's singing the verses, he tries to be calm, cool, and collected and to tell you his story. But then when he gets into the bridge, he rages about this loss and pain, and he just gets furious. And then he tries to calm down and go back into the verse and to sing to you about his hurt and about his failure to forgive. And the one line that tells it all is when he says, red is the color that will make me blue in of you, because not only is he pointing out Julia's culpability, but his own failure, his failure to forgive, it's going to make me blue no matter what. Let's just listen to that one part. Here it is. We didn't hear the I, I'll tell you, I, I, I just have to interject and say that when you hear John, you know, in, in these songs, when you hear him start to raise his voice in volume yeah. and pitch like that, you know something amazing is going to happen. You know, it's, yeah. it's that, yeah. that emotional climax. He was just so good at that. Yeah, he is just, he's lost you. He's lost the audience. On American Idol last night, one of the contestants said, uh, well, the purpose of music is to make people happy. No, not for real artists. They don't care if you're happy or not. Right. They are singing their song, and they don't care if you like it or don't like it. And John is singing his guts out about his life, and you heard that steel guitar sound, George using that effects pedal. It's like a sob. It's like, <laughs> you know, you can just yeah. hear this crying. And at the opening, when Paul has that mournful bass note that opens the song, oh, Wow. This song was only voted number 99 of the Beatles' Best 100 Songs by Rolling Stone. i, I got to say, I, I think it's vastly, vastly unappreciated, Kit. 
I completely agree with you. I know probably listeners are waiting for us to disagree on something, but uh, <laughs> but really, that I was so glad you chose this because I I agree. I think the harmonies are just flawless. Um, the lyrics are are as you've you know very astutely talked about. You know they're they're so mature. I mean for for you know they, they were so young. Uh, he was so yeah. John was so young at the time. I mean, it yep. was, you know, they're just, yeah, they're just these mournful lyrics. And I also love, I was glad you mentioned George's guitar, because I think it's interesting, you know, the Beatles, I think, fought through their, their the introductions and conclusions of their songs. They really fought them out. And this is a perfect example of that. Notice how, you know, that last note that George plays kind of, you know, when, when you go back and listen to it, it kind of fades into the air, kind of evaporates, and it sort of leaves a hanging question with the listener. Is, you know, will this, if, if you're looking at it as, you know, just sort of face value as a, a romantic song, can this romance withstand the ghost of this former love that, that right. the narrator had? Can this, you know, can the narrator move on, you know, from this, the, yeah, this, this woman that, that had hurt him so badly? Can he move on? And the way, as you said, George's guitar was almost a cry, and the way it evaporates, you're, you're kind of left hanging, you know? You're yep. like, you know, there is no conclusion to this. There is no pat happy ending. You know, and, yeah. and you know what and the I, sad I thing is? Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't survive it because John keeps searching for the older woman, the woman right. who is mother, the mother who is the artist, and it doesn't survive it because he finds mother. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. So that's, uh, yeah, so this, this song is, is fascinating on, on so many levels. It really yeah. is. Yeah. So, yeah. so good, good pick. I well, well, tell us about your Beatles pick. Well, my Beatles pick is actually kind of in the same vein of yes, it is, and I and I swear, folks, we did not check with each other before we we chose our song. So this no. is just a just a scary coincidence, um, and it's a song from Hard Day's Night, and it was, I think, just this beautifully constructed uh, song that was sort of buried in the Hard Day's Night soundtrack. It did not appear in the film, um, and it is I'll Be Back. And I just have always been knocked out by the harmonies, as we were just talking about, the three-part harmonies. Um, the, uh, as I said, the, the construction of the song, which I'll get to in a minute, um, the lyrics and the chord changes, really kind of unusual chord changes um, for uh, a pop song of, of the time. You know, it's another one of these cases where, when you first learn, I remember when I was trying to learn to play guitar years ago, and I thought, oh, I'm going to try to play some Beatles songs. How hard could they be? And then you try <laughs> to play them. <laughs> and and uh, this is a really good example of that. It's a lot harder to play than you think because the, the chords are, are, you know, they sound very complicated. So... Uh, so, th- so it's significant for those reasons. So let's let's uh, take a, a brief listen to uh, "I'll Be Back" and then let's let's dig deeper into this hidden gem. Okay. Again. 
Yeah, just I've, I've just always thought those those chord changes are are so distinctive. I mean, they they it's almost haunting. It isn't it? It it really is. It almost borders on jazz. I mean, it 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 adds a level of sophistication. You know, I yeah. I think. Um, interestingly, now those of you who remember uh, anthology, uh, the anthology one uh, compilation, you'll remember there was an early version of this song that appeared. They started it out as a waltz. They they tried, and you can just hear it. I mean, it's almost funny when you when you hear the, this outtake that you know it's so awkward. I mean, John's trying to sing these lyrics, and he he just almost <laughs> gets tongue tied. You know, and I think finally he said, "Forget it. Let's just go four four And and that was absolutely the the right decision. And notice that uh, if you remember, the original version had more electric guitar in it. And this one is acoustic. Now, I like to think of, of I'll Be Back as sort of the predecessor to Rubber Soul. You know, these, mm-hmm. they're starting to move in that direction that, that would then come into full bloom um, on Rubber Soul. That acoustic, heavily acoustic sound, um, that folk sound, and also the introspective lyrics. And, of course, they were starting to do that with Yes, It Is, and here they are uh, continuing it with I'll Be Back. Um, they also were, were showing, uh, before I get into the lyrics, you know, they were not ex- just experimenting with the chords. Uh, notice there's really no chorus. You know, it isn't yeah. verse, chorus, verse, chorus. Um, you know, there really isn't a chorus in this one. So it just shows you how they were, you know, were starting to break the rules um, a bit. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and that's just another, you know, another sign of, of their artistry. Um so it's uh, so they were definitely willing to to break the the traditions. Um, first of all, of course, the harmonies, the three part harmonies, are just just stunning, um, and uh, you know they they def, uh, definitely uh, navigate the uh, you know these gorgeous chords that pretty much alternate between a minor and a major, which is uh, again you know a way that that. It, creates that haunting sound and that's of course very appropriate for the the uh, subject matter um this is another sort of a, a tormented relationship you know this is this is an on again off again um kind of relationship and what's interesting is and, and yes it is now that i think of it is is a bit like this that it's it's interesting to see you know in in early pop songs it was sort of the 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 man was in, in if there was a male singer he was sort of the the main character in and and sort of the 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 dominant person in the relationship that is definitely right. not the case here you know um, cuz she he is pleading with her you know you could find better things to do than to break my heart again um, and he's trying to you know he's he still keeps coming back for more uh, he just cannot say goodbye um, to to this woman, and um, it, it, it's just such a, a twist. I mean, this is this is as far beyond you know love me do as as you can get, and I love love me do, but it just shows you how they were now, and and John specifically um, was starting to dig a little deeper and get into more of the complexities of relationships and. So, you know, the, and this is another case that, uh, as I talked about with Yes It Is with the ending, is, you know, will this relationship have a happy ending? My guess is it won't. You know, it's right. it's going to be an on again, off again. He's just going to keep coming back. 
uh, even though you know she she you know the unnamed person breaks uh, breaks his heart in many ways. But it's just interesting to note that she's in control here. You know, I mean, oh, yeah. I I just yeah, and I just think that's a that's an interesting uh, songwriting technique for that you know that time period particularly. So mm-hmm. I I think this is as I said this is the beginning of of their gradual move toward this you know this um uh, more complicated sophisticated uh kind of sound the acoustic sound the introspective lyrics that would dominate um particularly rubber soul they got they started going in that direction with beetle for sale too but it then came into full bloom um on on rubber soul so if you want to hear the roots of it that's this is where you find it and what is amazing you talked about yes, it is being you know ranked. What was it? Ninety one, I think you said on the board. Ninety nine. Ninety nine. Okay. Yeah. Really made it. This didn't rank at all. And oh, and <laughs> can you believe it? I, I, it's I'm, crazy I'm, talk. I'm, I mean, yeah, I, I'm stunned. You know, I just thought this is just such a distinctive, haunting, beautiful song, and it and it deserves more attention. And I think it just got overshadowed on the Hard Day's Night album because, of course, you had Hard Day's Night, Should Have Known Better. Uh, you know, there were so many great songs on that, and I guess you can't pay equal attention to, the, to all of them. But, but do not let this one pass you by. This is, this is truly a, a, hidden, a hidden treasure. Yeah, it, it reminds me, there's an episode, and should have been there, where, and again, this is from Pete Shotton, where... Uh, they have to be Indians. It's probably some school play, and they have to have Indian costumes. And Mimi has said to Julia, if you want to come over and help John make his Indian costume, you know, tomorrow afternoon would be a good time. And she shows up on the doorstep of Mendips, but instead of helping him make the Indian costume, they make face paint. And Pete and John and Julia march around the kitchen, whooping it up with their faces painted and and disturbing everything and getting icing all over the kitchen. And Mimi has to come in and throw everyone out and say, you know, what's going on? (laughs) And there's no costume that's been made. And that night, alone again, naturally, up in that little bedroom above the glassed-in porch, John is crying himself to sleep because she's been there and she's gone again. Mm. And you should have better things to do than to break my heart again. It just, wow, yeah. it's such an autobiographical song. It, it is, and that, and that's the thing. And, and same thing with Yes, It Is. You can read them, you know, they're, they're both at face value. They're, ro- you know, they're romantic songs. Um, but then when you when you really dig into his personal life, you see the connections there too. So again, it's just they're they're so lyrically complicated. Yeah, they are. They really, really are. Well, I'll play a little selection from my Beatles choice, and here it is. with the James Bond theme in front of it because it's not the song Help. That's gotten critical acclaim here, there, and everywhere. But the thing that I want to point out is the strength and the texture and the dignity of the Help 
LP, Ala Capital Records. You know, we all have this very strong feeling, all serious Beatles fans and enthusiasts and purists, that Capital, they're the bad guys. And EMI Parlophone, they're the good guys. And if you know anything about the Beatles, you know that they really selected their songs extremely carefully, and then they arranged them in a precise order, just the way that Kit would when she's writing a book, chapter by chapter by chapter, or or if I would write a poem. It's mm-hmm. so important to have the opening line or the opening song, song just right to set the tone for the LP. And then the next line, following in logical progression. And George Martin and the Beatles really thought about what would close side one of each LP and what would close side two. Side The closing song on side two was always a barn burner, twist and shout. Uh, roll over Beethoven. They thought about what would leave people wanting more, coming back to to buy another LP. But then, you know, along comes Capitol Records in December of 63, crossing over into January of 64. They're hungry to make a buck. They take the Beatles' Parlophone LPs, and they slice and dice them. They chop them up, and they make lots of LPs with fewer songs, and they're going to make money off of them, and that's why they're doing it. And absolutely, there's nothing, in my opinion, wrong with being smart and frugal and savvy and making money, hence our endorsement at the beginning of the program of the frugal publicist. If you've written a book, you need to sell your book. There's nothing wrong with that. But when you hurt somebody in the process and you destroy someone's poetic creation for your own profit, that's wrong. So... Even though, in my head, I I grew up listening to Capital LPs. I didn't even know when I was a kid that Parlophone even existed and that there were other LPs. And when I hear the order of Beatles songs, like if you sing Another Girl, I know what the next song is, a la Capital. But as I started researching the Beatles, I found out the Capital were the bad guys. I found out what they'd done to the Beatles and how they, they chewed up their poetic works. And so I started really preferring Parlophone. But this one time, Capital and not EMI got it right. They have the better album. Only the Capital version has that James Bond theme at the beginning of the song Help because they are clearly creating a soundtrack to a movie. They let you know it's a soundtrack. They not only include the songs from the movie, but they include the instrumentals from the movie as well. It's a classic soundtrack. So here's the difference in philosophy. Parlophone had a work ethic that made them release on every LP 14 tracks. It worked with Please Please Me. It worked with with the Beatles. It worked with Beatles for Sale. Even a hard day's night when they were so busy they could barely think, it still worked. But by the time that the Beatles get to help, everything's changed. They've made two movies in the last 24 months. They've completed two North American tours. They've done world tours, short trips like the trip that they did to Sweden. They've been on BBC TV shows and radio programs, and they've given press conferences. They've done interviews. They've gone to awards banquets. They have ceremonies. They have luncheons. They have black tie affairs. John's written two books. They're exhausted. They are fagged out, dead creased, as they say in Liverpool, And now they have to write songs. And the seven songs that they created for the movie were stellar. 
Help is number 15 on Rolling Stone's Best 100 Beatles Songs. Night Before is number 49. Hide Your Love Away, number 31. I Need You, number 49. Another Girl, number 94. Ticket to Ride, number 17. You're going to lose that girl, number 27. These are classic, strong songs. That's Memorable sure. songs. You know, they're, they're great. And Capitol knows it. And so they stop. And they populate the rest of the record with instrumentals. And I was recently talking to Rod Quinn out of Australia, and he said, well, what did you Americans think about having all these instrumentals on there? We were fine with it because we love Green Onions and Walk, Don't Run by The Ventures and that beautiful theme from A Summer Place and Pipeline Mm -hmm. and all those instrumentals that people out there are thinking of right now and shouting at us at the computer, (laughs) you didn't play this one. Yeah, the <laughs> instrumentals were classy. They were cocktaily. They were kind of suave and cool, and we really enjoyed them. So I never thought twice about them. That was the Capitol LP. But over at EMI, they still have to come up with seven more songs. Mm-hmm. And so, weirdly enough, when you tune in to side two of the EMI LP of Help, you find Ringo singing Act Naturally, which has nothing to do with the film. The My only thought process and why they did this is maybe George Martin thought people are going to be asking what are these songs doing on the Help LP oh well it's still about the boys being in the movies and being film stars if they act naturally and the Mm -hmm. rest of the LP these next seven songs they do what they do they act naturally but what follows is a very strange melange of music It's, it's some of it's very good some of it's not good it's only love a song that John said he despised in 1980 in those Playboy interviews. He said he hated it. But I think that was really kid only because he was airing the dirty laundry of his marriage. You know, it was yeah, really I, floundering, you know, yeah, with Beatlemania and all that. And so I think it was embarrassing. That song was embarrassing for him. There was TMI, really. Yeah. But, <laughs> uh, you know, immediately when you start to get, oh, okay, that's a pretty good song, then you come upon You Like Me Too Much. George has already had one song on this LP. Now, this is his second one, and Tim Riley calls this song George Harrison's Lowest Point. It's kind of a mean song. It's it's egotistical. I mean, it has lines in it like, you've tried before to leave me, but you haven't got the nerve. Mm-hmm. And by the time that you finish listening to You Like Me Too Much, you're kind of on the girl's side. You're like, leave him, leave him. It's kind of a mean song. And, yeah, that's and it true. Doesn't, it doesn't paint George in a good picture. And then Paul comes in with Tell Me What You See, which has been dubbed a working draft of I've Just Seen a Face. It's okay. It's fine. It's not great. Then there's I've Just Seen a Face, which is a good song. It's folksy. It's mm-hmm. light. It was. It, it's a sing-along. It's a very good song. But, you know, it's right next to Tell Me What You See. And then they buried track six on the back of the LP, this ballad called Yesterday. And, you know, you and I know how powerful that song's going to be, and it's going to be remembered forever. And every time John Lennon's introduced, they're going to play Yesterday. <laughs> it's so that he's, he's like another McCartney song, you know. It's <laughs> a powerhouse. But Paul says in the anthology that they buried it on side two because they were embarrassed about it that they considered themselves leathered Liverpool rockers, and to sing this song with a string quartet, he said, people are going to think we're a bunch of poofs. And so, you know, they were they didn't like this song when, when they first came out with it. 
So side two is very, very strange. And this one time by restraining and only putting seven songs on and then adding those instrumentals, I really think that Capitol scored big. What do you think? You know, I, I really, I, I've got to say, your your analysis really made me rethink this because like you now, I mean, I, I started getting into the Beatles in the 80s and that back then until 87, the Capitals rec- records were the only things available. And so I too, quotes, grew up um, with uh, the Capitol help version. And so then when the CDs came out and we were told these are the real releases, these are the pure releases that this is how the Beatles wanted you to hear these. And, you know, so I, yep, so my, my, and I was, I was, a total music snob back uh, back then in the late 80s and I said oh well fine I'm just never going to listen to these capital versions again I'm going to listen to the pure version you know as I said being the musical snob I was so anyway so you know but but the more you you've talked about it and and, and analyzed it, you know, it is true that, that the Capitol version was more of a traditional soundtrack. You know, it made yeah. sense. And when you hear, uh, the, when you, you know, hear the, the um, uh, EMI version, I mean, yeah, like, you know, what's Dizzy Miss Lizzie doing there? You know? Right. <laughs> what's, I right. Mean, what what's that about? Um, you know, as you said, you like me too much. Yesterday, what I mean, you know, yes. it, it and that's an odd placement. So if you hadn't seen the movie, you would think, what what is this? You know, and, right. and what does this have to do with anything? So uh, you know, I see what you're saying. I also think those instrumentals are important to to you know, not that you shouldn't overlook them because remember, George Harrison was introduced to the sitar, you know, uh, through help. And so right. you hear some of that, and of course that not only changed George's life, but the creative direction of the Beatles. You know, right. I mean it, and and therefore brought the instrument more to the attention um, of of the rock, uh, buy, you know, rock uh, buying public. And so I think that's another reason that that those shouldn't be yeah. forgotten. So you you really made me kind of rethink my my position on on the Capitol. Uh, version. I surprised myself too because I was like, "Oh no, we can't like Capital. They're the bad guys." But right, this exactly. one time, yep, yeah, that's the this, truth. This, well, we picked two cover songs. Tell me about yours. All right. Well, the one I picked might cause a little controversy, but but we'll see. Um, and uh, it is "Honey Don't," but not the version you think. This is the version from Live at the BBC with not Ringo on lead vocal, but John. Um, yeah, now, a little background. When I first heard this, you know, in the so going, I'm sorry, I'm like in a reminiscing kind of mood tonight. Um, in the early 90s, I discovered through a, a good friend of mine, Eric, the joys of bootlegs. You know, never, never understood what wonders they 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 had, um, and he gave me, I made me, a, you know, back when we were still making mixtapes, a copy of a copy of a copy of a bootleg of some of the BBC recordings, and I had never heard these before, and these were a revelation. You know, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, I just, you know, a, a way you could listen to them live and and not hear the screaming and everything. You know, this is, and and this was just incredible stuff back then i mean this was a few years before live at the bbc came out before anthology came out you know this this was all just i mean you heard about it but but you know you didn't always get a chance to to actually hear the recordings 
So when this version of Honey Don't came on, I just, my mind was just blown. You know, I, I just, it, it sounds so different um, in many ways. And I think it contains one of John's best rock vocals, and you never hear about it. And I, I don't know why. So let's hear a little bit of it, and, and I think you'll see why I chose this song. Great or what? <laughs> I love it. I mean that—that's just a, a wonderful vocal there. Now I know, and I, I know I'm, I'm thinking of a couple of people in particular who are probably listening tonight that are big Ringo fans. And let me just say, I have nothing against Ringo. Ringo's version is great. It's—it's it's, uh, in fact a bit more in keeping with Carl Perkins' version. You know, it—it—it's it, uh, a bit more country rock. You know, and it's great. It's a—it's an absolutely charming version. But before they decided to let Ringo have the lead, when the Beatles performed uh, this song, uh, John sang lead. And this, uh, that recording was from 1963. Uh, they recorded it for one of their specials on the BBC uh, radio called Pop Goes the Beatles. Uh, Pop Go the Beatles, excuse me. And um, it's, it's just pure joy. You know, it is, it is so energetic. John clearly had a ball singing that song the scatting at the end i mean that that alone is worth the price of admission you know um and and the way he let that raspiness you know creep into his voice the way the spin he put on it it was a bit sexier you know a little more dangerous you know than uh than ringo's version and so uh, much as I, I love Ringo, um, I, I have to say I always felt this was the better version. And, uh, and I was so glad when it finally came out, you know, on a legitimate release on, uh, live at the BBC. And, again, you never hear about it, and I don't know why. And, and the rest of them, by the way, sound terrific, too. I mean, Ringo does a great job with the drumming. Paul's bass just rocks on it. Um, you know, John, uh, John's rhythm guitar and, you know, George plays lead, of course. You know, it just all comes together, and, and they were just, when it comes down to it, they were just a damn good rock and roll band, and, and this oh, is absolutely. the epitome of that. Absolutely. absolutely. So, you know, yeah, so you that's hear Ringo's version, and you smile, and you feel warm and fuzzy, but that's not yep. the response you get to this one. <laughs> exactly, exactly, and and so I guess that's why I always responded a bit more to to this version. It just had more of like a real raw rock sound to it. Um, and uh, so that's uh, so that was my my pick. That's one of my all time favorite covers they ever did. I love it too. I really I was just so delighted that you picked that one. It's a lot of people don't even know it exists, and it is so strong. Well, we only have seven minutes left. It's crazy. Oh my goodness! And our very last song is the haunting cover "Stand by Me," of course, written by the great Benny King with the help of Lieber and Stoller, two of the finest songwriters ever. 
1960, Benny King comes into their office, and he has a bit of a song that he's written inspired by Psalm 46, 2 through 3, and it's Stand By Me, Lord. He sings a little bit of it, and then they go over to the piano, and they help him write this gorgeous, gorgeous song. Fourteen years later, in 1974, John Lennon is living in Los Angeles. He and Yoko are separated during that very creative period, but very unstable period. Eighteen months, sadly, very sadly mislabeled as the lost weekend. It wasn't lost, and it wasn't a weekend. John's mm-hmm. living with May Pang. It, she's utterly devoted to him, and she's a great influence on his songwriting and on healing relationships with Julian and with Cynthia. But look, John's a mess. His marriage is rocky. Yoko calls every single morning to wake him up, and, but she won't let him come back. There, He's pleading with her. She says no. He's living on the West Coast. He's doing some drugs, but he's doing a lot of drinking, which is never good for John. He's a terrible, no. mean drunk. And in the book, uh, Loving John by May Payne, She's telling about an episode right before he recorded this Stand By Me, and she's talking. They, he had been recording with Phil Spector doing the rock and roll album where, of course, Stand By Me is found. And he was drinking the night before and ended up shoving a lot of people and fighting, and they finally had to tie him to the bed with, with ties. And he's now broken free of the ties. And she says, The screaming continued for another five minutes. I didn't know what to do. I wanted to help John, but I was too panicked. I heard him thrashing around, the sound of glass shattering. I knew he'd ripped himself loose and had just thrown something through the plate glass windows. He's screaming for her, Fungi, where are you? He staggers out of the bedroom at the top of the stairs. He wasn't wearing his glasses. His feet and wrists had been tied with neckties. He had pulled it apart, snapping the ties. Two ties dangle from his feet, and he's screaming, Yoko, Yoko, you wanted to get rid of me. You, all this happened because you wanted to get rid of me. I'm going to get you. He was lost in a nightmare. And the next morning when, Ye, when May talks to him about what happened, he doesn't really remember it, he says to her, I... I'm just a human being. I'm so tired of having everyone expect so much from me. I'm just a human being like everyone else. Mm. This is when he records his cover of Stand By Me. His voice is raw. You can hear the pain. You can hear what has happened to this man over the last few years. And if ever anybody sang this the way it's supposed to be sung, it's John Lennon. Here he is, Stand By Me. You know, Kit, to me, that's not just a song. It, it's definitely a prayer, a plea. It's a song for Yoko. 
you know, Let's Reunite. It's a song for Julia, who left him standing outside 251 Men Love Avenue to live with Aunt Mimi. It, it's a song for May, Don't Leave Me, Stand By Me, Fung Yi, Be With Me. And it's a song for you because you've taken time out of your night tonight to be on the John Lennon Hour and to care about him and to remember him. It's a song for everybody who's listening and who might love him and take him in and adopt him and hold him close, whether it's through a song that you love or a quote that he said or a poem or one of his sketches or just a memory. He's asking you to stand by him in a voice that's almost broken. It's overburdened with what he called a sadness, too deep for tears. So that's my last one, Kit. How about these songs tonight? Well, I think, you know, they they are all significant in their own way. Um, they, you know, haven't gotten the attention that they deserve, and I, I hope our conversation tonight uh, make uh, inspires all of you to go out and give these songs another listen and uh, and appreciate them for the for really the gems that they are. They really are beautiful, and I can't thank you enough for being here. I love the Kitten Caboodle show, and tell everyone about what we're doing on the next show. Oh, it's it's going to be a good one. Uh, in June, we're going to come back and do a show called What Went Wrong at the Beatles' DECA Audition. This is the one time that, uh, to paraphrase John, the Beatles did not pass the audition. And uh, we're going to uh, talk about... You know, what went wrong, we're going to look at the songs, we're going to look at the story behind the songs and, and try to figure out why weren't they chosen by, by DECA. So I, I think this is going to be a great show. I cannot wait. And next week, a good friend of yours, Bill King, will be back, mm-hmm. the editor of Beetle Fan Magazine. Kit is also a contributing editor to Beetle Fan. Bill has interviewed everybody, Ringo, Paul, George, and he's going to talk about his amazing adventures. He's going to tell us about all the people, Klaus Borman, Neil Aspinall, Bill Harry, everyone he's interviewed, part two. We started talking with him about a month ago, and he's going to be back to give us the rest of the story. So, Kit... Thank you, thank you, thank you for being on the show again tonight. Love Kit Caboodle, and I'm already excited about that next show. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. It's always fun to be on here and and discuss our, our favorite topic. It is wonderful. Well, until next Thursday night on the 9, goodbye to all of you. Ta-ra, as they say in Liverpool, and shine on.